If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Uh, today we begin, or actually end the series titled Broken, and it's a recognition that you know, we live in a, in a broken world, but that's not the end of the story in that Christ was broken for us, that work on the cross set things in motion, that we can have a personal relationship with him, that the power of sin has even been broken in our lives, and that that points to a new reality, a new mission in our lives. We can live in such a way where our identity can be built on Christ. But today today I want to go after one last consequence of Christ being broken for us. And it comes from the words of Peter, uh, penned obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but let me just begin with some context again. Peter is writing here to this church. They're in trouble. The church is under severe persecution. Uh, it's at a time period when many Christians were getting killed and it was just a lot of antagonism toward those that were walking and trying to follow Jesus. And Peter is writing to give them hope. They needed hope in the midst of a world that was falling apart um, around them. But one of the nuances to Peter writing in this passage is really to think back as to when Peter had an encounter with Jesus. His brother introduces Jesus, uh, Peter to Jesus, and it was at that point that Jesus actually changed his name to Peter, meaning that you could either interpret it the rock or the stone, and we're going to hear about that word even today, but it's a recognition that, that as even in, in days ahead as he was training Peter, that he made a statement to the disciples and Peter and said, on this rock, I am going to build my church, and that encounter is really weaved into our text even today uh, as well. So Jesus changes his name, knowing that he wants to work and to use Peter for eternity. But let's jump into the text. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of God. I'm going to stop there for a moment. Peter knows that the flesh is getting in the way, that there's a battle with sin even in this church, and he gives them an answer as to where strength can be found to deal with that battle against sin. And he uses that phrase, desire the pure milk of the word. And I think that's pointed even toward us as well, how easy it is to desire everything else except the word of God. See, Peter knows that if you're talking about spiritual change and the need for it, that it begins with a relationship with Jesus, and it starts with this book in terms of understanding he, who he is as we read this, this, uh, this book together. But let's go to verse 4. And coming to him, him meaning Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the, in the sight of God. The analogy here, a living stone, a stone that is not dead. Peter's saying, Christ is this stone. 
And if you think back to that encounter then earlier in the days when Peter and Jesus were together, on this rock, that same word rock is stone, on this stone I will build my church. See, Jesus was in the business of building a church. Matter of fact, the metaphor of a rock and stone is common. And we're going to see actually the quote. I want to go back to the quote from Isaiah 28, 16. Look, just listen to it. I don't have it on the screen. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. See, Peter, Peter is understanding that the that, that word stone means much when it comes to Jesus and that we'll see that Jesus is the living stone. But it's an imagery that Jesus used, but it was also consistent with the time. Remember, Jesus grew up in, a, uh, in the home of Joseph. Joseph, they believe, was a carpenter, but back then, if you were a contractor carpenter, you would deal with both stone and wood at the same time. Those materials were very common. But let's jump to verse 5 then. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. And here's a quote. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. See, on this rock... I'm going to build my church. Jesus is not only the foundation, but he is the chief cornerstone. Now, one of the things that uh, I I haven't told a lot of people of, sometimes you leave out the history. I'm just that old, I guess, and you can't remember back that far. But growing up, when I was in college, I actually worked for a couple of years for my brother. And my brother had his own concrete business. And so what he did, he mainly poured basements, poured walls for, for homes and for, for businesses. But oftentimes, if a, if a homeowner didn't want a poured wall, they would ask for a block wall. So I, I did both pouring of walls, and those forms are really heavy lifting them out of a basement. But you got to the block wall, and guess what? my brother ended up teaching me how to lay block, a block wall. And, and I worked at a number, many, quite, quite a few number of basements uh, working and, and laying block. But, like, you know, I, I didn't tell, by the way, I didn't tell people that they might ask me to do it, and that's way too heavy a work, let me tell you. I'm way out of shape for that. But we need to understand that when you lay block, okay, you always begin in the corner. There is a corner block. And matter of fact, let me put that picture on the screen. I have that little red circle. There is a corner block. And then the rest of the rows, the rest of the blocks are connected to that. And that creates the starting point for that structure. So you recognize here the symbolism in that is Christ is saying, I am that block. I am that stone. That holds everything together. The corner is, is the place where the strength is formed in that wall. If you don't have that corner, you're going to have tippy walls. 
So to recognize, recognize what Jesus is saying about himself being the cornerstone. But let's go to verse 7 as well. This precious value then is for you who believe, for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense... For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Now those verses are very difficult verses in the sense where people, when it comes to Jesus being the cornerstone, people are tripping over him. He's getting in their way. And he becomes offensive to people. And you'll notice there the... the, the, the depth of that is that it's going to make a difference when it even comes to, to eternity. And, you know, my hunch is that when it comes to our culture even today, that more and more Christ, I believe, is becoming a stumbling block for people of our day. The idea there that Jesus has authority and that he's, he sets a standard of what righteousness is, he is becoming a stumbling block for more and more people. Matter of fact, this last week I just read where the California legislature have introduced a bill where they will basically limit what pastors can write and sell and teach on the issue of sexuality. Now, there's a pushback to some degree. We'll see what happens with it. Now, as you hear that, you go, what is the consequence long-term in terms of the United States? Now, here's my belief, is that I think it's just going to be a snowball effect in our culture, and we as a, a people of God are going to have to be ready for persecution more and more. It's coming. Now, in saying that, I go, I don't think we have to fear that. You know what? I, we know the rest of the story. We know who's actually in control here, okay? But let's, I want to jump, here's where I want to jump back to verse 5, though. We need to dig in this verse here this morning. Look at how it reads again. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, earlier on in, in chapter, or verses 1 through 3 there, crave, put aside stuff and crave the milk of the word of God. But there's a subtle shift here. And that the application of that is to the individual. You come to verse 5 and there's a turn and he's talking, Peter, to a collective group, to the local churches. So he's really dealing here, he's speaking in the context of plural, of people gathered together. That's the context of that. We, but he tells us then that we are living stones. See, that's group talk in one sense. But here's where I want to put up that same picture again to illustrate this. And you'll see that arrow there, and I have faith. It's pointing to the mortar, the thing that connects the block with the corner block, the cornerstone. As one puts their faith in Christ, we get mortared in to Christ and we get to relate to the cornerstone. We're connected to that cornerstone. We're being built into the cornerstone. 
And, and Peter, understand, is using the imagery of that, that we are connected. But one nuance to this, understand this, when it comes to us being living stones, you go, how did we become living? What's well, this? We are connected to the cornerstone who is the living stone. Our life of being a living stone comes from the living stone who is Jesus. Matter of fact, I want to put 1 Corinthians 15 on the screen, verse 45. Look how it reads. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Christ here, becomes a life-giving spirit. As we are connected to Christ, bond with Christ, the Holy Spirit is put into us. Jesus, the cornerstone, is pouring his heart and his bond into our lives. So he's reminding the churches back then, he's reminding us today, you guys, you're living stones because you're connected to the living stone and Christ is pouring his life into you. See, if a church is apart from Christ, if a church begins to deny the word of God and say, we don't really care about Jesus anymore, at that point, a church loses all spiritual power. And, that, and frankly, there are churches that are going down that path. But we must stay connected as a church and make Christ central. But I think one of the challenges is in that is that people, when it comes to even spiritual change and connected to Christ, we think that, yeah, we know we need to grow up in our faith. We know that change needs to happen. But we kind of adopt this idea that, well, I'll just learn some more. I'm just going to learn some doctrine, and, and I'll learn a set of behaviors, and I'll do those behaviors and learn the rules. And I go, no. That's really a very subtle form of works righteousness. Trying to change our lives on, on our own. See, we got to stay connected to Jesus, a relational connected to him. He's the one where transformation is puts into our lives, where he's the one that's transforming our life through the Holy Spirit. Now, a question that I, I thought of as I was studying here a couple days ago, and it was this. How do we know that that relational connection is, t- is really working. Maybe there's gaps in the mortar. How do we know that we're connected to Christ? I, I think Peter actually hints, maybe more than hints, how we can tell if that's taking place. Let me put the phrase on the screen that we read earlier from, from, chap- from verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of God. See, there's an assumption there that if you've tasted the kindness of God, that there's there's this connection. Let me illustrate it this way. I have a a mint. I'm going to come down and give Scott a mint. He needs it. Would you open that up, Scott? And I want you to take a lick. Is it safe? He doesn't trust me. <laughs> is there a little sweetness to it? Yeah, they're sweet, isn't it? I understand this in this illustration. 
this mint is a little bit like Jesus. And you, and, and you think of your relationship with this mint as Jesus. And we open it up, and you know, once or twice a week, we take a lick. And then we put it down for a week. How much will you savor the sweetness of Jesus if you only lick once a week or once a month? You understand what needs to happen? We need to put the lifesaver in our mouth and taste of the sweetness of that flavor. And you go, how do you know? What does it look like when we, when we taste of the, the goodness of God? And I, I think it's like this. Every day we wake up and we go, man, does God have compassion for me? I blew it yesterday. And you know what? I taste of his forgiveness. He forgave me again. See, do we taste of the goodness of God? And we realize how patient he is. And literally that he wants to pour his patience into us. As we taste him, he changes us. But if you only lick the thing once a week, we're never going to be able to savor that in a way that changes our hearts and our lives. We need to taste every day of the goodness of God because he is good. And he wants to change us from the inside out. Give us a new life. A life that just is joyful. You think of that fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's what he wants to pour into our lives. But I need to move on because there's another consequence in this verse. Look at the phrase. We are are being built up. It says, as a spiritual house. Let me give you the application. Christ, the living stone, is building his church. See, number one, as you draw near to Christ, we're going to become like Christ, and we taste of him. Number two, Christ, the living stone, is building his church. Do we remember that? Do we savor that? See, it's what he told even Peter and the disciples. I am going to build my church. See, the image here, as Jesus followers, the wall is being built up. Let me put another picture on the screen here. Here's a picture of the walls that are more complete. Those blocks in a church represent people. People. And they're called living blocks, living stones who are being built together. See, do we see ourselves in that kind of a framework of being built up like this foundation of a house and we're all connected together? See, Peter's assuming community. He's assuming a whole bunch of blocks together because he's writing to local churches. But see, as we do that, Christ, a Christ follower's identity is being changed. It becomes enfolded into a church. You know, this idea, we have a growing element, really, in our country that 
it's Jesus and me. I don't need a church. You understand this illustration, how do you do that? Matter of fact, I came across a quote from a guy from England, a scholar from England, C.B. Cranfield. Look how he writes. The freelance Christian who would be a Christian but is too superior to, be, to belong to the visible church upon the earth, which would be a local church, in one of its forms is simply a contradiction in terms. The Jesus and me thing, folks, that's a contradiction. He's building a spiritual house. He's talking to local churches here. I want to put up another picture that really has represented this. You notice that that arrow points to a little lonely block there. It's not a part of the wall. See, we want to take that block and then we lean it up against the wall, but if it's not mortared in, you're not part of the church, the block wall. And how do you use your spiritual gifts if you're a block that's not in being enfolded into the wall? See, he gave everyone spiritual gifts to be used for building up the wall even more, for more blocks being put next to each other. Uh, Parents, I've got to remind you that you really are instrumental in connecting your kids to the wall, to the church. And the reality is that there's a lot of students right now, high school and college, that are walking away from the wall. They're going, I I don't want anything to do with with the wall. And yet the wall is connected to the cornerstone, Christ. I wish you had more time to deal with it. But parents, again, how are you helping your children being enfolded into that wall? What does it look like? See, a block that lies out by itself is useless. It can only be used if it's incorporated into the building. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and people are the fabric of that church. I, I wish we could spend more time, but when you think of what it means to be enfolded into the wall, one of the ways is in the area of serving, serving the body of Christ. And, and Oftentimes, you know, people kind of stay on the edges and go, nah, I'm not sure I want to be involved. But I'll tell you one thing. It, it, sometimes we, we as people just need to go, okay, what can I do? Just okay, We open up our hands and go, tell me, where do you need help? Maybe it's Tuesday morning. Maybe it's some other way, working in the nursery, whatever it is. But you understand one of the, the delights, if you've, many of you have led ministries within the context of the church, and you know how much you enjoy people coming up and go, just tell me, where do you need help? Matter of fact, I think angels are dancing in heaven when that happens. But sometimes being part of the wall just says, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to do, and you actually sometimes you actually discover what your spiritual gifts are as you jump in to serve. Now, just one quick alley that I need to go down here. Some people like small houses. Can, there's getting too many blocks. It's getting too big. 
Do you realize, though, if we buy into that belief, what we're actually saying? Jesus, the church is big enough. You've built a big enough church. Or even to say, well, they can go to another church. And I go, no. It says something where we're at spiritually. I realize that we want comfort and security and to know everybody, but it's the realization that Christ wants to build his church. He wants churches to expand and grow and start and get bigger. Because more people need to get connected to the cornerstone. See, my prayer, we're going to start a building campaign and kick it off actually next week. But at some point, we want the building to be the tool to have people enfolded into that concrete wall. They're mortared together with other people. They're being used in their gifts. Why? So the church can grow. The kingdom can grow. Lives are changed. More and more people are connected to the cornerstone. But there's another piece in this verse as well I need to go down. And look at the phrase, you're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, here's what I said in the sermon notes. I got 3A and 3B here. 3A, Christ never intended for us to, to do church. Rather, we together are to be the church. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to just do church? I, I think it's this. Functionally, we just do things and go attend without ever being connected with people. We're not mortared together with people. But there's also another element, I think, as well, in what it means to be the church, and it comes from that word priest. Priest. See, to be the church, every person who claims to follow Christ must embrace this idea that they are a priest. The priesthood of the believer. But but again, okay, think of people driving by even here today. They know that there's a group of people in here. How many of them would define it and say, oh, I I wonder how many priests are in there? They wouldn't hardly think that way at all. But Peter announces to us that we are priests. See, that word is deeply descriptive in terms of our connection and being the church and Christ being the cornerstone. It speaks to the way we function as a local church. It speaks to the way we are to relate to people and even relate to this world. Now, let me make a statement. For some of you, you maybe never, I suspect you've never thought of it in these terms. Um, An observation. The previous church I was at was a much larger church than us. And this, understand, it isn't, larger churches are inherently better than smaller churches, not at all. But one of the observations that I had in, in, and I've been in all different kinds of churches. Deanna and I were in a church of about 40 people out in Vancouver, Washington. But in smaller churches, 
more people want the pastor to function as a priest. If you come from a Catholic tradition, I'm not trying to bash the Catholic tradition, but understand they're thinking about a priest. There's a definition that we have when we hear priest that somehow their role is unique compared to everybody else. And some people even look at me as a priest. How do I know that? Well, one of the ways, when I go down to my in-laws, Deanna's family, and we gather for a big meal, guess who they ask to pray all the time? The priest. <laughs> I want to hide behind somebody to avoid it sometimes. But, you, okay, where does that mentality come from? See, they're viewing somehow, okay, is my prayer any different than the guy that's seated next to me? I go, no. See, under the, understand this, over the years even of working, it's almost been 25 years in a church, somehow people believe that a pastor's prayer means more than an elder's prayer or means especially more than a friend's prayer. Now, is part of our role, and do I want to pray for people? Yes, I think it's part of the function of being a pastor and a shepherd and an elder. We are called to pray. But the prayer doesn't mean anymore. It's not gonna, it, there's not a direct route to God some way because the pastor prays over your friend. See, the fact is, you and you and you and you, you're a priest if you know Jesus one of the advantages in a larger church for pastors is they actually can really in many ways focus more on equipping people to do the work of the ministry. That's one of the nuances to it, the changes. Now, there's a little secret I'll, I'll let you in on. Um, in the senior pastor world, just over the years, and I learned this a long time ago, even before I got into ministry, is there's a lot of pastors who like being a priest to people, okay? Their identity is built around that. But here's where we got to go. You must, we must grasp the significance of the issue. You are a priest when it comes to a life in Christ. The church was never supposed to be about the pastor. It's about a group of priests, I wish I could take more time. In the Old Testament, understand that there are two primary functions of a priest. And the first is, you understand, the priest had access to God. To the temple, the high priest would go into the holy and holies and offer sacrifice. But if you know Christ and you know any level of doctrine, you know that's done with Hebrews tells us that we have direct access to God. We are now priests. But in that role, the priest back then was to bring God to the people and the people to God. That was one of their functions in the Old Testament. 
See, Peter's saying that through Christ, our cornerstone, something is different. You are now a priest, and you have a privilege just like the priests in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, I want to put up a Latin word for you. Pontifax. This Latin word is the word for priest. But the literal meaning of it is this, bridge builder. Bridge builder. The priest is a person who builds a bridge so one person can start to walk a path toward God. As a priest, do you know that you are to be a bridge builder? Understand, that concept is baked into disciple-making and go and make disciples. We are building bridges as priests from God to people, from the people to God. That is a part of our calling and an invitation as we are now priests. Ministry is not just entrusted to a certain class of people to do that. Sure, there's different roles, there's different gifts, there's different callings. I understand that. There's lots of differences. But hear this, you as a priest are to be a bridge builder between God and people, helping them walk over that bridge. But there's a second component of of being a priest as well. Look at verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And look at this underlined phrase, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 3B, here's the second function of being a priest. We offer acceptable sacrifices to God. You know, in the Old Testament, the priests would offer and bring the sacrifices to the altar. But we know that because of the atonement of sins, because Christ died on the cross, that is done with. But now we become priests, and we still bring sacrifices. That's what Peter's telling us. To God. See, it's offering to God things that, not anything that he needs, but it's things that just please him. Do we know that what we're doing actually can please God? We give our offerings just because God delights in it and he's pleased with it. Some of you have maybe, you know, the love languages and that test about different love languages. Do you realize that God, one of God's love languages is gifts? As we sacrifice and give gifts to him, he's pleased with it. Let me just give you a couple of what it means. What are the sacrifices when it says that we are to give sacrifices? Let me, these aren't all inclusive, nearly all inclusive. Romans 12.1. It says, offering ourselves to God. We offer our lives to him. Every area, every part. And when we do that, do you know that you are offering a sacrifice to God? Ephesians 5, 2. Offering our love to God and others. See, he wants us to direct his love toward him. And when we even direct our love toward other people, do you know that that is an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God? Philippians 4.18, 
offering our financial support to God's work. In that text, they were giving. I understand this, when you're faithful with your finances, some of you give to the church, some of you give, give into the building fund, but when you do that, when you give, that is a pleasing and sweet sacrifice to God himself. Hebrews 13, 15, offering our praise. And it's more than just singing. See, when we testify with our mouths and give glory to God and testify of his unfailing love, when we verbally talk about it, do you know that that is a sacrifice that's pleasing to God? When you're telling other people, God is really good. You're giving him, our Father, a sacrifice. The last one I enlisted, Hebrews 13, 16. It's offering our goods, our stuff, and our works to God. And when we do that, God is pleased with us. Do you catch what Peter's been doing here? in a progression, all the way to the point where he's going, church, this is about building a church toward acceptable sacrifices. Now, there is a tension with sacrifice, sacrifices. The very word sacrifice, you go, what does it mean? It means you have to sacrifice. <laughs> Look it up in our dictionary. It costs something. Time, energy, money. See, but God, when we do it with a gracious heart, when you do it with a heart that says, I want God to be pleased, he goes, well done. See, are we priests? Do we know that we're to be a bridge builder, that we are to offer sacrifices of God as priests? And catch, that's the way we function. We're living stones. We're connected to the cornerstone who infuses his life into us and he changes us. And he connects him to himself. So all of a sudden we're moving where he's changed us to the point where we're sacrificing our very lives to him. And he says, well done. Is that what your life and my life is about? This week... How about taking the lifesaver? Tasting of the goodness of God. He, he wants to change our hearts. He, he wants us to be able to offer sacrifices with a spirit of, with an attitude of just joy. Not just obligation. He wants us to move us to a place where it's joyful. So taste and see this week how good he really is. Let's stand and pray.